You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers, and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland. Once again, you're all very welcome to the Matheson Employment Law Masterclass series. Brian Dunn is my name, and I'm the head of the Employment Benches and Benefits Practice here in Matheson. And today we want to talk to you about the key employment law themes for employers over the next 12 months. To assist me with the discussion here today, I've invited five other members of the Matheson Employment Practice to join, and they are as follows. Ellen Nolan, a senior associate in our Dublin practice, who's going to talk to us about the government's remote working strategy. Tina O'Sullivan, a senior associate from our Cork practice, who's going to talk to us about some of the continuing changes in the whole area of family leave, as well as the pending legislation in relation to a statutory right to sick pay. Russell Rochford, a partner from our Dublin office, will talk to us about the changes in the whole area of whistleblowing protection that are coming down the track this year, as well, coincidentally, as a very significant Supreme Court decision that was handed down just before Christmas and what that means for employers. Ruth Keehan, a senior associate in the Dublin practice, is going to talk to us about some of the the hot issues coming up right now in regards to COVID. Obviously, COVID hasn't gone away, but there are particular questions that are coming up at the moment that are causing real difficulties for employers, and we want to bring you through some of those. And then finally, Alva Dennehy, a partner in our Dublin office, is going to talk to us about the gender pay gap reporting requirements and some of the additional detail we expect to see coming out this year in the regulations, as well as what steps employers can start putting in place now to get ready for this. As with all of the masterclass sessions to date, what we want to focus on here today are the practical side of these legal issues. So we're going to bring you through some of the questions that our clients have been putting to us most frequently in the last couple of months as they deal with current issues and also as they prepare for the next 12 months ahead. As you can see, we've got quite a lot to get through. So why don't I turn now to Ellen to kick things off? Ellen, I want to talk to you for a moment about the government's remote working strategy. And in one of our sessions last year, when it was then launched, we talked about what it involved and in particular a commitment within it for the government to introduce a statutory right for employees to request remote working. Can you maybe bring us up to speed on where that is right now and what it's going to mean for employers in practice? Thanks, Brian, and good morning, everyone. So I think it's important to mention first that currently an employee can make a request to work remotely. However, they don't have a statutory right to do so. And there's no legislative framework which determines how employers must deal with these requests. So that's exactly what the government is planning to legislate for. So as you mentioned, Brian, this legislation is one of the initiatives set out in the government's remote work strategy. So during the summer of 2021, the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment concluded a public consultation on the proposed legislation. And then a public statement and report was issued by the Thonisha Leo Vracker in August, which I'll mention shortly. So the original timeline for implementing the legislation was by the third quarter of 2021. So clearly this has been pushed out. However, it is likely to be progressed early this year. So in terms of what this will mean for employers, the strategy itself doesn't provide any details as to the substance of what this right will involve. It is likely that employers will be required to at least consider a remote working request and to provide a response to the employee within a defined period of time. So this would be similar to the existing right to request flexibility on returning from parental leave. 
employers will also very likely need to provide for an appeal mechanism where a request is declined. So the Taunashtha has publicly said that employers will need to provide reasons for refusing a remote working request. And this is similar to the position in the UK, where an employer can only refuse a request for flexible working if they can show that a specific number of grounds apply. However, the Taunashtha has acknowledged that remote working won't be suitable for every organisation and that a balanced approach will be taken to the legislation. I think it's important to stress that the legislation will not grant employees an automatic right to work remotely. However, employers will need to have a clear structure in place to deal with these requests and crucially to provide objective reasons if refusing requests. I think what will be very interesting to see with the legislation is whether it will include um, specific grounds for refusing a request. So such objective grounds might include situations where facilitating remote working would result in a significant cost burden on the employer or where the role requires face-to-face -face interaction with customers. I think it will also be interesting to see if employees will have, have a right of action against their employer where a request is unreasonably refused and whether there will be any minimum service requirement for employees to avail of the benefits of the legislation. What's concerning a lot of employers already in talking to them about this is the administrative burden that the, the process of reviewing the requests and even dealing with the appeals will create. So it, it will be interesting to see how that's dealt with in the legislation. But right now, from what you've explained to us, we're in this kind of strange interim period where employees can generally already request it, but we don't have the legislation yet. So have you any advice for employers as to how to handle requests that do come up at the moment, or even with a view to setting the right precedence for the long-term position. Yes, certainly. Thanks, Brian. So I, I suppose in terms of managing remote working requests at the moment, having a written remote working policy in place is key. Um, so this policy really should deal with issues such as eligibility, data security, confidentiality, health and safety being very crucial, um, training, insurance, working time, sick leave, and even whether employees can work outside the jurisdiction given the tax considerations. The policy should also set out objective criteria for considering a remote working request and then a comprehensive procedure for dealing with these requests, including having a right of appeal where any requests are refused. Now, of course, this aspect of the policy will be more relevant as public health restrictions ease, given that the majority of office-based workers are working remotely anyway at the moment. Now, the policy, of course, will need, may need to be updated once the legislation is implemented. And there will also be developments within organisations once offices begin to reopen and hybrid working arrangements are introduced. Employers will need to keep these policies under review as the legislation and best practice develops. And with this in mind, I would recommend that employers build in flexibility for themselves within their policy. So for example, perhaps trialing a period of hybrid working post pandemic. I think it's also important to mention that remote working is just one aspect of this broader concept of flexible working and which really involves any alternative work pattern in terms of when, where and how an employee carries out their work. So we are seeing some organisations implementing what they're referring to as smart working policies and these deal with all aspects of flexible working, including remote and hybrid working arrangements. 
And I suppose just to refer back to the strategy for a moment, I mean, at the moment, of course, a lot of us are working remotely, uh, given the guidance to work from home unless necessary to attend the workplace. But what the strategy encourages employers to do is to examine whether remote working will be suitable for their workforce in the longer term. So as we've seen in practice, remote working isn't appropriate for all roles and industries, particularly healthcare, manufacturing and construction industries. But it would be useful for all sectors and organisations to explore with their employees whether remote working could be facilitated in the longer term, perhaps through use of technology. I suppose the reality is that most organisations that are office based at the moment will move to a hybrid approach post pandemic, whereby part of the employees working time will be spent on, on premises in the office and then part of it will be spent at home. You mentioned there, Ellen, that remote working is just one aspect of the overall strategy. Could you maybe outline quickly some of the other aspects of it, please? Yes, exactly. So I suppose there is this kind of broader concept of flexible working where we're also seeing a lot of developments coming down the tracks. Again, just to sort of set the scene in terms of the current landscape, at the moment, there's no general right to request flexible working arrangement. Um, however, where an employee is returning from a period of parental leave, they do have a statutory entitlement to request a change in their working hours or working patterns or both, which would apply for a certain amount of time on their return to work. So the employer has to consider but is not required to grant the request and the employer has to make a decision no later than four weeks after they receive the request. So at the moment where the employer refuses the request, they don't have to provide any reasons, but this is likely to change, which I'll I'll mention in a moment. But in any event, I would recommend that even now some form of objective reasoning is provided because otherwise it could leave the employer open to claims under the Employment Equality Acts. And there's also a code of practice on access to part-time work and this encourages employers to consider employees' requests to move from full-time work to part-time work. Now the code of practice isn't legally binding however if an employer faced a challenge for refusing a part-time working request it would be helpful to show that the employer has at least considered and applied the code. So in terms of the developments in this area, so in 2019, the EU passed the Work-Life Balance Directive and the directive aims to increase the participation of women in the labour market and the take-up of family-related leave and flexible working arrangements while promoting equal sharing responsibilities, caring responsibilities, I should say, between uh, men and women. So once implemented, the directive will extend the right to request flexible working, which includes flexibility um, regarding the place of work to employees who are carers and to those with children up to a certain age. And the minimum age set under the, the directive is eight. Um, employers will still be entitled to refuse these requests for flexible working. However, they will need to provide reasons for the refusal. So Ireland is required to implement the directive by August of this year. And then there was also in the summer of 2021, a public consultation carried out by the Department of Children and Equality in relation to flexible working arrangements. And this looked at issues such as how the pandemic has impacted flexible working and what obstacles there might exist for employers who do wish to facilitate 
flexible working arrangements. So the government has said that the findings of the consultation will inform the development of a new flexible working policy and guidance. However, a report on the outcome of the consultation has not yet been published. So as you can see, there are a number of legislative changes looming and these will all further impact the changing nature of the workplace and I suppose the expectations and the requirements on employers around remote and flexible working. Okay, thanks for that, Ellen. And already there's a question in there on working time, recording obligations for employers where we have employees working remotely. So we might get to that at the end. We, we will have 10 minutes or so for questions and answers at the end. Tina, thanks, if I could, Tina, if I can turn to you now just to talk about family leave entitlements. Ellen already mentioned the Work-Life Balance Directive and some of the initiatives there. And we have seen in recent years a lot of change in the whole area of family leave to try and address work-life balance and promote diversity in the workplace. So it's become quite a tangled web. Would you mind just recapping on what the, the current law is and also what we can expect to see in the next 12 months? Thanks, Brian. Good morning, everyone. Um, I suppose tangled web is certainly one way of describing it. And in the past year and in even the past couple of years, family leave entitlements have really become very confusing for employers and with the introduction of various new forms of family leave and variations then to existing leave entitlements. So I suppose just to recap briefly, what do we actually have right now? What's in place? The most obvious one is obviously maternity leave at a 26 weeks basic maternity leave during which maternity benefit is payable and then 16 weeks of unpaid leave. You've adoptive leave, 24 weeks basic adoptive leave during which adoptive benefit is available and then 16 weeks of unpaid leave. Paternity leave, which is a newer form of leave, it's a two-week entitlement during which paternity benefit is payable for new parents and it's usually taken by the father of the child but it's now also available to same-sex couples. Then more recently is the introduction of parents' leave. So I suppose employers confuse paternity and parents' leave quite a lot. So parents' leave is different in that both parents can take the parent leave entitlement of five weeks. That's due to increase to seven weeks in 2022. And then finally, parental leave of 26 weeks, which is unpaid for each child and to be taken before their 12th birthday. We do have a useful chart which sets out the various family leave entitlements we can share after this webinar. But just to be clear, employers are not required to pay enhanced payments to employees during any period of protective leave. In practice, I suppose most employers do top up the statutory payments that employees receive from the Department of Social Protection to full salary, in particular for maternity leave, adoptive leave and paternity leave. In relation to top of parents' leave, this is to a lesser extent, and I suppose really because it's such a new form of leave, employers are adopting a wait-and-see approach as to whether they actually will top it up or not. Then on that, on parents' leave, the main change that's expected to take place this year in relation to leave entitlements is that of parents' leave. So in April of last year, parents' leave increased from two to five weeks, and the time frame for parents to take that leave also increased from two years from the date of the child's birth. In Budget 2022, it was announced that parents' leave is due to increase from five to seven weeks for each parent and such changes are due to take effect in July 2022. We haven't actually seen any legislation for those changes yet, but it is anticipated they will come into effect this year. So I suppose just a flag for employers when they are planning the year ahead to remember that these changes are due to be introduced and that they are in fact distinct to parental leave because I know employers get Parental leave, parents' leave and paternity leave confused quite often. So it's parents' leave is the one that's due to change this year. And I think that chart we can circulate, Tina, is very helpful in Britain. Yeah. And it does seem quite progressive in the way it has come up, come out of nowhere. And already it's increasing up to seven weeks. But 
by comparison, when you look at the Irish level of benefit compared to certainly the Scandinavian countries, we are miles behind. But even some of the, the southern Mediterranean countries where paternity leave or parents leave can be up in 16 weeks, there still is quite a gap there, isn't there? So the next question, Tina, and this is one we've, we've already received a few questions from clients on, is whether they should start amending the policies now. So what advice do you have there? At this point, no brain, I suppose, really because the increase hasn't officially been introduced. So there's nothing needs to be done just yet. But consideration should be given as to whether employers will actually top up parents' leave or not. This is something that we're getting queries on an awful lot because employers simply don't know what to do. And I suppose now with the increase from five to seven, it's something for employers to consider whether or not they will do that. I suppose because of the market we're operating and the competitiveness and employers are always trying to attract talent, it's something that is attractive for employers to do. So some employers are going ahead and doing that. However, I suppose on the most part, employers are not topping up parents' leave and it's really only in the tech sector that we have seen it to date. So I suppose it's really a wait and see approach. But as for now, and to answer your question, no, no changes need to be done to the policies, but just give some thought as to what payments might be made. And then Tina, turning to the sick pay legislation, there was a lot of talk around the, the fact that Ireland is one of the few countries in Europe that doesn't have a statutory sick pay entitlement And the pandemic definitely highlighted this. So could you just bring us through what the the legislation plans to do? Yeah, and I suppose just to take one step back, Brian, and so that everybody's aware, because this is something that employers constantly ask us, there is no, as matters currently stand, there is no obligation on employers to pay sick leave. So the duration and the rate of any pay is decided by each employer and it's typically stated within their sick leave policy. In practice, the duration of any sick pay varies significantly between organisations from a few days to a number of months. And on the most part, most of our clients would be offering some form of sick pay entitlement. And that's, again, really to retain talent and to have a good benefits package on offer. But to answer your question, yes, Ireland Ireland does intend to roll out a statutory sick pay scheme, where in fact only one of a small number of European countries in which there is no legal obligation on employers to pay sick pay, I suppose, in the way that, that we do annually, for example, So in November of last year, the Sick Leave Bill 2021 was published on the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment's website with the aim of making statutory sick pay a legal right for employees. So that legislation has not yet come into effect, but we are hoping that that will come into place early this year. The scheme is set to introduce paid sick leave for up to three days in 2022, five days in 2023, seven in 2024, and then 10 in 2025. Just to flag at this point, for those employers who have a sick pay policy in place, it really isn't going to materially change a lot for those employers, particularly in circumstances where the rate of payment for statutory sick leave is going to be 70% of normal wages that's regularly paid to an employee, and then it's going to be capped at €110 per day. So this was on top of that, the draft scheme also sets out that an employee will have the right to take a complaint to the Workplace Relations Commission where they're not provided with the company sick pay scheme. So similar to that of taking an annual leave claim to the Workplace Relations Commission. So that in itself is useful to know, Tina, that for the majority of employers already providing sick pay, this legislation will have very little impact. Exactly. So really, Brian, all employers are going to have to do is just to amend their policies to take into fact that, you know, whatever the draft sick leave bill does provide for that, they just have covered that off in their policy. That's whenever it does come into play. Okay. Thanks, Tina. We might stop now for a couple of moments just to go through a a quick poll with five questions on some of the topics we're covering today. And these questions primarily come out of 
topics that we are seeing coming up from clients in regards to the impact of the code of practice on the right to disconnect, for example, and some of the practices Tina mentioned around particular sectors paying levels of family benefit as part of the whole recruitment drive and the war on talent that is, is coming up that you're all probably reading so much about in the media. Plus a lot of focus on difficulties employers anticipate in the transition back to the workplace. So I think it will be particularly interesting to see we have over 200 people on the call at the moment, so it would be interesting to see what the general consensus is there where people see issues likely to arise. So, Sarah, I think we can close the poll now and we'll move on to Russell Rochford, who's going to talk to us about the, the EU whistleblowing directive. And, Russell, as you know, the government was given up until the 17th of December last, along with every other EU member state, to transpose the EU whistleblowing directive. So can you just let us know where we are on that at the moment? And... Um, what we can expect. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Brian. Good morning, everyone. So the government published a general scheme in May last year, which set out the amendments that it proposes to make to the Protected Disclosures Act 2014 to bring it in line with the EU whistleblowing directive. Therefore, it looked like Ireland was on track to transpose the directive before the EU deadline on the 17th of December. However, the government missed the deadline, and we understand that the Protected Disclosures Amendment Bill 2021 is unlikely to be enacted until the end of the first quarter this year. And that's at the earliest. So that could mean that in practice, it actually isn't brought in until after the, the first quarter. I guess what that basically means now for us is that the 2014 Act, as it currently stands, will remain law up until the point that the bill is enacted. There is one important caveat to that, though, and that is that as and from the 18th of December last, uh, the directive is directly effective against public bodies. So public sector organizations, they do have to comply with the requirements of the directive insofar as there's a gap between the directive and the 2014 Act. For most of our listeners on the call this morning, you'll be glad to hear that that does not apply to private employers. So the directive can't have direct effect so as to bind private employer. Can you talk us through the main changes then, Russell, that we're going to see in the legislation? Yes, so the the amendments really will generally extend the scope of the current legislation and the protections available to individuals who make protected disclosures. It's fair to say that Ireland really was quite late to the game when it enacted the whistleblowing legislation in 2014. And by that, I mean that most other EU member states had already put in place some form of whistleblowing legislation. I guess the, the benefit of that now, though, is that to some extent, our legislation represents you know, somewhat anyway, uh, best practice when it comes to whistleblowing matters. And, you know, the, the fact that we now have to make changes mean that those changes to transpose the directive, they're, they're not going to be too extensive or too significant. And, you know, there's perhaps one or two exceptions to that. But there are quite a few changes. I think the key changes, though, for me, are that, first of all, as I said, the scope of the 2014 Act is going to be broadened to now capture a much larger group of workers. So there's a definition of workers that includes what you'd expect. So employees, consultants, agency workers, contractors. It's, it's going to include, once the bill is enacted, shareholders, volunteers, unpaid trainees, and also job applicants, so prospective employees. Probably one of the biggest changes, I think, anyway, for HR practitioners on a day-to-day basis is the fact that employers will now be required or will be required to follow certain prescribed procedures against clear timeframes when dealing with the protected disclosure. So the scheme proposes that employers have to acknowledge a disclosure within seven days, which is quite a, a tight time frame. They then have to diligently follow up and keep whistleblowers informed in the most comprehensive way they can. That's the, the wording that's in the, in the directive. They also have to provide feedback to 
whistleblowers within three to six months of the disclosure being made. And of course, the whistleblower then should be provided with the outcome of the investigation that's carried out. The next kind of key change for me anyway is the 2014 Act currently permits an employee who is uh, dismissed for something that relates to a protected disclosure. An employee in that situation is entitled, if they want, to seek an injunction before the circuit court to restrain the dismissal. And the bill now proposes that this injunctive relief is obtained by workers in all cases, including where a worker alleges penalisation. So that really extends the remit of that right of recourse to, to, to employees and it's one as well that you know is quite a significant weapon in the armory of an employee in all cases. Lastly, and I think this is probably one that most employers have heard of, but I'll mention it anyway, the 2014 Act currently requires just public employers to have in place whistleblowing procedures, but the bill now extends that to all employers, including private employers, although private employers with between 50 and 249 employees will have until the 2023, December 23, to comply with that, it looks like. Thanks, Russell. And then finally, the Supreme Court decision that came down before Christmas. That was quite significant. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so it kind of came at the beginning of, of December, kind of through the cat amongst the pigeons when we were all sitting around waiting to hear how the government was going to transpose the legislation to implement the directive. But it's significant because really everyone up until that point had proceeded on the basis that the 2014 Act excluded interpersonal grievances, which only related to an employee's contract and no other contracts. And that was more or less based on the WRC's code of practice on whistleblowing, which explicitly provided for that exclusion. And also as well, there's certain language in the 2014 Act, which I'll talk about in just a bit, which basically reflected that. Um, however, the Supreme Court has now very clearly said that the code of practice is simply wrong. And that appears to be due to what is an anomaly in the 2014 Act, because the, the Supreme Court says that complaints or personal grievances do now come within the, the scope of the Act. So I, I think the definition of relevant wrongdoing in the 2014 Act is very wide in the Supreme Court, and Justice Hogan focused on two relevant wrongdoings in particular. First was probably the widest relevant wrongdoing, and that is that a person has failed or is failing or is likely to fail to comply with any legal obligation. But I think the issue for everyone was that the 2014 Act excluded breaches arising under the workers' contract of employment. So, you know, you can clearly see how people interpreted that as not allowing interpersonal grievances to be protected disclosures, particularly when you read it in conjunction with the Code of Practice. But the Supreme Court has said that that exclusion, that particular exclusion I mentioned, only covers a disclosure about a contractual breach but it doesn't extend to a statutory breach. And when I read that first, I was kind of scratching my head as to what Justice Hogan meant by that. But he does illustrate that by providing a useful example of a complaint about the payment of remuneration. And what he said was that you can see, you know, that remuneration will clearly and invariably form part of a contract. So an employee, due to this exclusion, can't bring a protected disclosure in relation to a remuneration issue arising in the contract, but also an employee could have an issue in respect of remuneration that arises in the context of the payment of wages legislation. So, for instance, if the employee has a complaint about the mode or the method of payment of wages, then an employee can raise a complaint and that can be a protected disclosure insofar as it relates to the statute, which, which is interesting. The other relevant wrongdoing that Justice Hogan focused on was where the health or the safety of any individual has been, is being, or is likely to be endangered. And essentially, Justice Hogan said that if an employee is concerned that their health or safety is endangered, well, then they can make a complaint and that could be a protected disclosure. And 
I think for me, this is one of the wider ones or one of the more significant issues with the judgment because you can see how somebody might believe that their health is being endangered where, amongst other things, they're being bullied or harassed or they believe they're being discriminated against or they're suffering from stress. So you can see how wide that could be for an employee. And it's really something that I think employers need to be aware of up to the point that this this anomaly and the legislation that the Supreme Court have identified is rectified. I guess then in terms of you know what this means for employers and, and you know what's going to happen next, you know, the practical consequence of this decision is, is really that an employee who raises a personal grievance can potentially seek to avail of the protections, the special protections that are available to whistleblowers under the 2014 Act. There's absolutely no doubt though that the Supreme Court simply identified an anomaly in the 2014 Act. And it's more or less signposted to the government that this has to be rectified. If you look at Justice Charlatan's concurring judgment, that's more or less what he says. But employers you know, should be aware that employees could now seek to take advantage of that anomaly in the period prior to the enactment of the bill, including in relation to unfair dismissal claims where they don't have you know, the 12-month service to become eligible for the protection of that legislation. It is, though, I, I should mention, clear from the general scheme of the Protected Disclosures Act that I mentioned, government issued last year in May, that the act when it's sorry, the bill when it's enacted will explicitly exclude interpersonal grievances. So the government is permitted to do that in accordance with the whistleblowing directive. So the anomaly will be rectified, but it remains to be seen how far this will happen in the context of the Supreme Court's decision. Okay, thanks for that, Russell. We did already have a couple of questions in on the whistleblowing proposals even in advance of the session today so hopefully we get time to go through those at the end. Bruce if I can turn to you now just to talk about some of the issues coming up for employers in regard to COVID maybe the the safest place for us to start is what is the current position because the, the guidance around employees in the workplace has changed so many times over the last 20 months maybe you might help us and just tell us what is the law as of today at least. Sure. So the current government guidance is that everyone should work from home unless it is necessary to attend the workplace in person. And that has been the guidance since late November. No indication has been given, I suppose, in respect of how long that government direction will be in place for. So the Work Safely Protocol, which was actually updated this week, simply states that the protocol remains in place until further notice. Although obviously there is a lot of talk at the moment of restrictions being eased. So we might see movement on that in the coming weeks. There is no official guidance in respect of which roles or tasks would necessitate on-site attendance. So in the absence of such guidance, our view is that it is up to each organisation to determine whether or not it is necessary for an employee to attend in person based on factors like the nature of the role, the commercial or operational needs of the business and the individual circumstances of the worker. If employers are undertaking that analysis, it should be undertaken to consider why it's necessary for certain employees or specific functions or teams of employees to attend in person. Obviously, if it's not necessary for an employee to attend the workplace, the employee should work remotely. And any decision-making process in that respect should be documented so that the employer can evidence compliance with the protocol, whether that's for the purposes of a WRC inspection, which I'll come back to in a moment, or for other reasons. Where attendance in the workplace, I suppose, is necessary, the protocol provides clear and important guidance on the infection prevention and control measures required to prevent and reduce the spread of COVID-19. So just, I suppose, one point there in terms of the inspections is that we're seeing actually a significant emphasis by the Workplace Relations Commission inspectors on compliance with the work safety protocol. So it is important that organisations are prepared to illustrate their compliance if they have employees attending on-site. And I think there's going to be a lot of focus on whatever announcement is made tomorrow 
listening to the news this morning and the messaging coming from the government, it does sound like there's good news coming, but I suspect it might be the lower hanging fruit, like the, the eight o'clock closing time and things like that, as opposed to a mass return to the workplace just yet, because it is such a large population of people involved in that particular move. But let's wait and see what happens. One other question here, Ruth, is given the recent surge in the numbers and the impact that has had on absenteeism in the workplace, both in terms of people getting COVID themselves or being close contacts or having to mind family members, etc. It reminds me a little bit of the early stages of COVID in that it had a very immediate and sudden impact on employers from an operational perspective. So what advice are we giving employers in regard to how to manage those type of absences? Yeah, so I suppose the first place for employers to start is their own company's sickness absence policy. And this will be a good opportunity for employers to carry out a review and update their policy if they haven't done so over the last kind of couple of years, I suppose, since the pandemic began. COVID-related sickness absence should be treated like any other sickness absence, including with regards to sick pay and any procedures that employers may have in place, such as return to work forms. So that's fairly straightforward in, in that regard. With regard to close contacts then who may need to isolate, the general government advice still remains. So those employees who you know, they should be working from home if their attendance at the office is not strictly necessary. So where possible, if they're close contact, they should simply continue to work from home, provided they're feeling well. And during that'll be during their isolation or restricted movement period. What we are seeing, obviously, as you've mentioned, Brian, as a major challenge for some of our clients is where employees cannot work from home, for example, in the pharmaceutical or manufacturing industries. So the level of absence of those contacts has obviously been very disruptive for production lines, for example. And it's particularly challenging because there is actually different public health guidance depending on an employee's vaccination status. So some close contacts can be absent for longer than others. And again, hopefully, you know, the, with the recent easing of restrictions for close contacts, that will help to relieve the pressure. But from, I suppose, just from a legal perspective, and as Tina mentioned earlier, as it stands, there is no requirement for employers to pay their employees who are not available for work. So, you know, I suppose the only point really to take into account is that there is enhanced illness benefit for COVID-19 and that's available to employees who are unable to work due to a diagnosis of COVID-19 or being in close contact. And that payment is it's obviously enhanced. It's €350 Euro per week. So that that is obviously a, a possibility for people who are caught by that. Okay. And then... Probably the most frequent question we've received over the last three or four months is in regard to vaccine status and what employers can do. And, you know, in particular practice, uh, this is coming up for a lot of the international clients because they are able to push things a lot further in other jurisdictions. And then when it comes to asking about vaccine status for their Irish employees or making being vaccinated a condition of returning to the workplace, a condition of returning, it's becoming an issue for them. So can you just give us the, the position on both of those issues, please? Yeah, well, as you say, we could have a whole webinar on this topic mm. alone, I think. We're seeing a huge volume of queries on this. And in terms of employers asking employees about their vaccination status, the Data Protection Commission issued their most recent guidance on this point last November. And in that guidance, they stated that employers should only process COVID-19 vaccination data where it's absolutely necessary to achieve a specific legitimate purpose in line with general and sector-specific public health advice. So that is to say that a legitimate basis for such processing would be extremely limited. 
And it may be that in the future, it is permissible for employers to acquire vaccination status of employees, but that will only be in very limited number of sectors. So maybe in healthcare. And we can say, I suppose, with a good degree of certainty that it is highly unlikely that processing vaccination data of employees will be allowed for most sectors, including those that the majority of our clients are operating in. In terms of the return to the office, the messaging from the government is that employers can certainly encourage employees to be vaccinated by allowing them paid time off to attend vaccination centres. But it is, I suppose, it's most likely that a mandatory vaccine policy would be unenforceable in Irish courts if it was legally challenged. So we've seen many clients toying with the idea of compulsory vaccination policies based on their ability, as you said, Brian, to, to roll it out in other locations. But when it comes to it, we're not aware of any that have actually done that in Ireland because it's simply not workable here. And I suppose it's worth noting that the Work Safety Protocol states that seeking vaccination status of employees is generally not a necessary measure to ensure a safe workplace. And the protocol kind of goes on, I suppose, to note that the vaccine programme is optional and that irrespective of the rollout, the best way to prevent the spread of COVID is through the implementation of public health infection prevention and control measures. So that's the usual, you know, social distancing, mask wearing and adequate mm -hmm. ventilation. Okay, thanks for that, Ruth. We might come back at the end to talk about some of the examples we've seen from clients as to what you might call a, a compromise on, on this that they have been considering rolling out in the workplace. Alva, if we can bring you in now at this point to talk about the gender pay gap. The legislation was eventually passed and signed at uh, some point last summer. So does that mean that mandatory gender pay gap reporting is now a thing for Irish employers? Yeah, thanks, Brian. And I suppose somewhat unhelpfully, my answer to your first question is going to be yes, but no. Um, <laughs> so the concept of mandatory gender pay gap reporting has been in the works for some time from an Irish law perspective, in particular since this reporting requirement was introduced in the UK as far back as 2017. And personally, I often feel like the boy who cried wolf over the, the last few years, uh, as I've often been predicting that this is coming down the track, coming down the track. But happily now, as you said, after a few false starts and a few different types of bills that made it some way through the Irish legislative system, we did indeed get this over the line, as you correctly said, last July, the Gender Pay Gap Information Act was signed into law by the president. And so to explain my answer at the outset, while we do have this act, it's very light on detail. It really doesn't get into the nuts and bolts of what we needed to do in terms of giving practical advice to clients and for clients and, and employers, sorry, just being able to know exactly what this reporting requirement is going to mean on a day-to-day -day or year-to-year -year basis. So what we're really waiting for now are um, regulations that are required to be issued under the auspices of this particular act. And it's those regulations that are going to put the meat on the bones of what these reporting requirements will mean for employers. The big question is, when do we expect to see these regulations? Certainly the act requires the regulations to issue as soon as reasonably practicable. And back in the summer last year, the quote from the minister, the relevant minister was, and there will be no delay or foot dragging. And these regulations are on the way. So the prediction was that we would see these regulations by Christmas 2021. That hasn't been the case to date. However, there is still a drive to move this forward. Um, so I'm not going to be the boy who cried wolf again. Uh, we are expecting these regulations to come in either Q1 2022 or at the latest Q2 of this year. And from a practical perspective, we are predicting that Ireland will follow the practical approach that was taken in the UK, where when they introduced their law, they gave employers what we call a lead in time. They took a snapshot date and they said, right, the clock is now ticking. You have 
12 months to crunch the numbers, get your house in order, and then publish the relevant information. And we expect that to be the case here. So we're looking loosely at a sort of 2023 reporting date. Thanks, Alba. And there is still a little bit of uncertainty or confusion around the terminology when it comes to the gender pay gap. So could you just recap on what a gender pay gap is and what it means for an organisation? Sure, absolutely. And, and it's a great point and, and it's very, very important from a context perspective to distinguish between these two key terms. One is the gender pay gap, which is what we're going to be talking about today. The other is this concept of equal pay for, for equal work, like pay for like work. Very unhelpfully, these terms have been used historically quite interchangeably, such that there tends to be this taboo feeling around the existence of a gender pay gap within an organization, an automatic assumption that a woman in the business is not getting paid the same as a man for doing exactly the same job. Therefore, there must be some gender discrimination afoot. And I want to be very, very clear that it's actually quite normal and quite expected for there to be a gender pay gap. Obviously, there are outliers, but just as a kind of a generalization, you would expect there to be a gender pay gap. It does not mean automatically or necessarily that there is a terrible culture of gender discrimination. And to try and explain that a little bit more, I'll give you the definition of a gender pay gap. It's the difference in the average hourly pay of women compared with men across an organization. And the way I find best describes it from a kind of a a visual perspective is to look at your business divided into quartiles or quarters, which is probably going to be the approach that will be taken and when we're actually doing our numbers. But look at your lowest paid workers, your lower to middle, your middle to upper, and then your upper paid workers. And the idea is that you're looking to, while you're running those numbers, you're really looking to identify where the women are within your business. Where are they represented? Are they clustered at the top, in the middle, at the bottom? And it's that identification of where your your spread is or your representation is that then helps us see, well, look, what are the measures that we need to put in place to create a more even distribution of both men and women across the board from lower, middle to upper pay. And that's what we're really trying to get to. If I have time, Brian, and please jump in if I don't, because I am conscious of the time. Um, But one colorful example that I think helps employers understand that even with the best will in the world, you may still have a gender pay gap on your books is a case study that was conducted um, by Harvard Research a couple of years back on Uber. And I'm going to assume that everyone on on this call knows what Uber is. But effectively, it's it's when you're looking for a lift home and uh, you call an Uber and that Uber driver takes you home, basically like a taxi service. But what's interesting about Uber is that it's an app-based service. It has a gender-neutral algorithm. So it doesn't discriminate in terms of male or female Uber drivers. So the initial position was, well, Surely then, if, if everybody is, is on the same footing in terms of this platform, if everybody is charging the same rates to their customers to get them from A to B, there can't be any gender pay gap. But in fact, the study found there's a 7% pay gap. And what was interesting is delving into those external factors, things that were outside of the control, for example, of, of Uber or an employer, and we won't get into to the gig economy now and employment status. Mm-hmm. Um, but just by way of example, these external factors very much fed into why women ultimately were making 7% less than their counterpart male drivers. And very briefly, I'll give you the three key factors. The first was, and this is probably going to be controversial, but the first was that men were driving much faster. So they were able to do many more jobs within the hour compared to a woman who might be driving, rightly or wrongly, that little bit slower and more carefully, arguably. The second is driving locations. The study found that men were more likely to be happy to do the bar scene pickup at 
three o'clock in the morning and this is before COVID when we were allowed out at crazy hours of the day, but that male drivers were more likely to do that and more likely to be, inverted commas, happy to go through more crime-ridden, if that's the right description, uh, neighbourhoods. So they they had a broader kind of base. And the last point was actually experience. And this is interesting because it feeds into a more general um, description of some of the external socioeconomic reasons underpinning the gender pay gap, is that men or male uh, drivers had more experience because they were clocking up more hours during the week. The idea being, when the, when the research was drilled into, that women have that Again, generalization, but women are more likely to be the caregivers, the childcare, the caring for elderly relations, et cetera. So those three factors bundled in to what looked on the surface to be gender neutral created a gender pay gap of 7%. Okay, and that's really interesting how the, the external factors are so far beyond the employer's control and can lead to what could be misinterpreted against the employer. And then, Alva, to, to bring it back to So it was a really practical question for everybody who's listening in here today and planning their year ahead and what is on the agenda. What steps do they need to start taking now or indeed can they start taking now to get ready for this? Sure. Um, Great question. And again, uh, while I said at the outset that the regulations are still pending, that's certainly not going to be our advice to clients in terms of putting this on the long finger or the never-never and waiting for the final content of those regulations. So certainly what we are advising our clients is to take a hard look at your UK neighbours. They've been through this um, since 2017 on an annual basis. And Certainly for the first year out of the gates, one of the key feedbacks for UK employers was that it wasn't as easy as they thought it was going to be Mm. to collate and report Mm. on that data. It seems like a quick calculation and get out your calculator. It really isn't. So getting your house in order in terms of a couple of key action points will be really, really helpful to start as early as possible. So the first point we are recommending, and certainly we've been working with a number of of our clients on on this front already, in particular clients that have a a US and a UK base, They've already been through some of these calculations. But the first top tip, shall I say, is to do a trial run, do a a dry run, just really kind of get a sense of what your payroll looks like, get a feel for it and see how easy or difficult it may be to run those numbers, run those calculations and perhaps be guided by the current UK formulas because we're anticipating, again, we can't guarantee, but we're anticipating a very similar approach when it comes to the actual number crunching bit. The second practical point is to look at how your business is actually going to run those numbers. Do you have the right personnel in your payroll team, in your finance team? Do we need to bring in some sort of specialist training to get people ready to really probe those numbers and be able to ultimately produce an output that is factually accurate? Do we have, have the right technology? And this is something that we're we're seeing a lot of cottage industries burgeoning about the place in terms of the offer of we'll run all your figures for you because you don't have the right technology in terms of software or hardware. Is that something your business needs to look at? The third one, and this is a very practical one, I think for everybody on this call, is to really take a look at your existing policies and procedures from a HR perspective. These are going to be the backbone of the secondary part of the reporting that we haven't discussed in detail. But the idea around not just your numbers, but what it is you're going to do about your numbers. How are you really going to start reducing or ideally eliminating to the extent possible that gender pay gap? So you'll be looking at things like, well, what's your approach to recruitment? What's your approach to promotion, to transparent pay? to diversity and inclusion, to family-friendly policies and, and leave policies. That's just to pick up on some of the uh, the points that Tina mentioned earlier in terms of that, that new focus on leave. And in particular, male leave, that it's becoming much more common to share that, that role at home in terms of childcare, which is which is going to, please God, help us or, or get us across the line when it comes to narrowing that, that gender pay gap. Finally, lining up all of your key stakeholders, 
Who do you need on your bench? Who do you need on your side? So as I said earlier, you need to understand who's going to be helpful from a payroll and payroll and finance perspective. You also need to have your HR team across this in terms of addressing the communication of the existence of the gender pay gap. And more importantly, the communication of what it is that our business is going to do to kind of move forward and and adapt and ideally, as I said, eliminate or reduce that. Quick recommendation from me, the lawyer, but I would absolutely be recommending that you get your legal advisors on board. Certainly when the regulations do land, you will want that advice to really understand the, the components of the definition of pay. For example, are you adding in commission payments, shift allowance, all of those kind of smaller bits and pieces? Or is it just going to be base pay? So you want to make sure you're kind of following the, the regulations to the T. The other big bit here to bear in mind is concept of GDPR, which hasn't gone away. And we all know how serious that is and what we need to do from a data protection perspective when we are processing our employees' personal data. Thank you, Alva. And there definitely is a growing sense of employers, even last year, starting to do some of the, the homework around this. And even going back to when the UK ran their numbers, I remember at the time a lot of clients putting in the Irish calculations as well to just get ready for it to see what their position was like. So certainly employers have been looking at this since as far back as 2017 and 18, even in Ireland. Sarah, can we call up the poll results at this point? We might take a look at those for a couple of minutes before we get into some of the questions. And I'll invite Russell and Alva to comment on some of the results coming out of this here. So the first question is something I was particularly interested in, and that was whether employers were seeing much response from employees in regard to the, the right to disconnect code of practice. And um, it's quite high at 73% aren't seeing much of a response I'm not surprised by that result now, but if you had asked me that question last April, I would have been surprised because there was so much hype around it and so much media attention, even driven by the government. I would have expected more of a response from employees and employees expecting their employer to do more about it. So um, it's interesting how that one has panned out. The next question then around whether the organization pays for paternity leave. Yes, there is quite a high percentage there. We're seeing this vary across sectors, but definitely in the last 12 months, in the last two years, where benefits has become one of the main focuses in recruitment. And we've seen a lot of changing practices there. So perhaps while the number is high, it's not hugely surprising. The third question then is around the primary concern for the organization on the return to work. I know generally all of this concerns employers. There are different things within it that concern different employers. But interesting to see that the main one, managing employees refusing to return to the workplace. And I saw a headline in an article this morning about, and this was from an Australian employer, about it has to be overwhelmingly carrot and a lot less stick, which I which I agree with and I think is quite interesting. But it also almost assumes that the employee has a veto over whether they can come back at all. And it's perfectly within their rights to say, no, I'm not coming back full stop. And I think it's important for employers to manage that narrative so it doesn't send out the wrong message at this particular time. Now, I think a lot of employers are going to be sensible and sympathetic to employees' situations in this transition back, but it'll be interesting to see how that one goes. The question over vaccine status of other staff, only 10%. I am a little surprised by that because we are seeing a lot of employees raise that as a reason as to why they shouldn't come back to work, which in turn is driving a lot of the questions we're getting from employers about, well, can can we ask? Because we'd like to be able to say to that employee, 
well, you don't have to worry. 95% of our staff are vaccinated. And we might talk about that later on. Alva, do you want to take the, the question there about the gender pay gap and give your thoughts on that one? Yeah, it, it's interesting. It's, it's almost 50-50, actually, in terms of carrying out any kind of data review. And I suppose this is kind of indicative of even the fact that this is not a legal requirement in Ireland yet. We've already seen a number of employers, I can mention maybe just off the top of my head, on past Vodafone, carrying out that data and publishing that data. And I suppose this is one point that, that I didn't get into earlier, but just the real kind of brand reputation around what the gender pay gap looks like. And more importantly, what the fix looks like in terms of seeking to reduce or, or eliminate that that gender pay gap. And I just think we can't underestimate how important that is going to be in terms of the recruitment and retention of our key talent, in particular female talent, but just against the backdrop of you know all of the diversity and inclusion measures that every business around the world is taking more seriously than ever, and, and rightly so. I think Knowing your figures, and even by the way, businesses that have less than 50 employees and theoretically will never be caught at the moment by these regulations, you know, we're seeing those types of, uh, of businesses and clients of ours already probing their own data, regardless of it never becoming a legal requirement for them to be able to compete in the marketplace and to be able to say, you know, we are doing this because we think it's the right thing to do for all of those good reasons. So great to see that there's already been a number of steps towards getting your house in order and understanding and addressing that data. Thanks, Alva. Russell, do you want to maybe comment on the last question? Yeah, sure. So question is, what's your biggest specific concern as an employer for 2022? Not surprisingly, I think COVID-19 and the initial return to work is is probably, mm. you know, we're, we're kind of well-versed at this stage, employers right across the board in, in getting people back, in fairness, to the work safety protocol as well. Generally speaking, it seems in, in, in our experiences being well adhered to Again, not really surprising at all that retention and recruitment is is the highest concern, the biggest concern. Managing a remote hybrid workforce, I think, is well within the gifts and control of an employer. And I think lots of employers have really started and are well the way through various different kind of processes and procedures in relation to how they will implement a proper hybrid workforce. So it's obviously a concern. It's going to be a significant change for a lot of employers. But I, I think seeing the retention and recruitment piece up there at 42%, just reflects, I think, what we're hearing anecdotally. There's just so much churn in the market at the moment with the great resignation and all that kind of thing. There's a huge demand for employees, good employees, skilled employees. And I think what this for me really kind of highlights is the importance that employers will have in differentiating themselves from their competitors. So, you know, the gender pay gap is a good example. I think we saw over in the UK, a lot of employers kind of getting ahead of the legislation and putting out good news stories about their gender pay gap before they needed to do that just because they were in a position to do it. And it worked well for them in terms of, you know, marketing their company as, a, as an employer. And I think that's also the case with the likes of family-related benefits. There's a huge focus, of course, now for so many employers when it comes to things like well-being and mental health and stuff like that. So family leave-related kind of benefits, you know, if you're in a good position to tell a good story there, well, then, you know, that's the sort of thing that you can point to with a view to attracting people that you want to work for you. Thanks, Russell. And Russell, actually, if I can stay with you for the first question. The first question that I just want to put to you is, you talked about the anomaly coming out of that Supreme Court decision on whistleblowing with the result that basically every personal grievance can now be a, a protected disclosure. And there's a question here about the Supreme Court decision already being inconsistent with the whistleblowing directive. So how is this anomaly going to be rectified? Yes. Yeah, so the, as I said, it is an anomaly. And I think 
I mentioned the concurring judgment of Justice Charlton. And if you look at what he says, he points out the fact that the preface section of the 2014 Act makes it clear that, you know, there has to be a public interest element to any protected disclosure. Therefore, it shouldn't be the case that interpersonal grievances are, are permitted to be deemed as protected disclosures. And, you know, he talks about how they dealt with that over in the UK. They introduced into their equivalent legislation a public interest element and that deals with the fact that you can't have personal grievances and personal complaints. I think insofar as our kind of legislation now sits with the directive, I don't believe that the Supreme Court decision in Baranya and Rostera Meets, which is the decision that I talked about, is inconsistent with the directive. The directive actually, as with any directive, you know, will have certain aspects to it, which are requirements that each member state will have to implement but there is also then elements which are at the discretion of member states. And as it happens, the directive is clear that an, a member state can or could provide for interpersonal grievances as being excluded from the remit of the legislation. So it's not a requirement that member states do it. It's up to the discretion of each member state. So I guess the way in which the Supreme Court now have dealt with this is to say, you know, the directive doesn't say which way we have to go. It leaves it up to us. It seems that the government meant to exclude interpersonal grievances, but the way in which the language now appears in the 2014 Act means that, in fact, that's not the case. It means that you know personal grievances are or can be protected disclosure. So I don't see there being an inconsistency between the directive and the Supreme Court decision. And I think it's also worth mentioning as well that the WRC now is also permitted to interpret our own domestic legislation in a way which is compatible with EU legislation. And I think, again, the same point arises there. I don't think the WRC would be compelled to disregard uh, the Supreme Court decision or disregard the manner in which they've interpreted the 2014 Act because the EU whistleblowing directive basically doesn't require that a member state takes a particular stance one way or the other. It just says that it can do, and it's up to the member state to, to figure out what it wants to do. Okay, thanks, Russell. Tina, the next question is for you just in regard to paternity leave, actually. And that's whether we are seeing much of a jump in employees now taking paternity leave in recent years. Yeah, absolutely, we are. We're seeing a huge uptake in the number of employees now taking paternity leave, and I suppose even more increasingly, parents' leave as well. So, what we're saying to employers at this point is that they really should probably take a look at their policies to see how they can deal with it from an operational perspective because if you have a large cohort of parents now taking this type of leave I suppose dealing with requests is something that's very important now for the business so that's something that employers probably need to take a closer look at that wouldn't have been done probably a year ago or two years ago but really since COVID has come about there's been a huge uptake in paternity leave and in parents leave so it's really signaling a shift in attitude in many workplaces and something that employers are now having to deal with. But it's certainly a very positive step and shows that, you know, a lot more men are willing to take their paternity leave. And we are seeing a lot of cases where men are actually adding on their parents' leave to their paternity leave. So it's really creating, you know, that whole work-life balance as well within the organisation and showing, you know, parents taking steps towards family responsibilities at home. So absolutely, there's a huge shift in the family leave entitlements, particular paternity leave. Mm, and it seems to have come around very quickly. That's the interesting thing about it, because yeah. when the legislation was introduced first, it, it was probably a year before clients, certainly in talking to us, were indicating that the, the male employees were taking paternity leave at all. Ellen, I'll turn to you now for two questions, actually. One is 
point we discussed before, and that's a question that has come in just in regards to employers having an obligation to record working time for employees that are remote working and to get a sense of whether that's happening in practice. And then perhaps a slightly related question on the remote working front is the extent to which employers are obliged to provide comparable or equivalent equipment for a home office scenario. Yeah, thanks, Brian. So in just in relation to the first question around recording working time. So in a nutshell, employers have the same obligations to maintain working time records, regardless of whether employees are working remotely or whether they're working on site. I suppose employers do need to have the processes and technology in place to do this. And they also need to ensure that their employees understand what's required of them in terms of recording working time. As regards what's happening in practice, I think in our experience, a lot of employers are not fully complying with their obligations to record working time. And this has become even more challenging for employers to do with employees working remotely. I think possibly a large reason for this is that the organisations don't have the software or the time management systems in place to adequately record working time. But I would flag that this is an area where there's likely to be an increased focus on compliance, partly due to the introduction of the Code of Practice and the Right to Disconnect last year. So it is something employers really should be uh, properly considering to ensure that they do comply with their statutory obligations and perhaps other ways that might help in terms of, you know, reminding employees of the importance of taking rest breaks is through training initiatives and wellness programs. And this is also, I suppose, linked to uh, complying with the code of practice on the right to disconnect. And then turning to your second question on the provision of home office equipment. So I suppose this is not a clear cut answer, but I suppose the starting point is to look at the health and safety legislation. And really, again, the same obligations are there on employers in terms of uh, maintaining a safe place of work for employees, whether that be on site or working from home and duties to provide safe equipment. So I suppose what some employers are doing is, and, and again, this is something that they really should be doing is carrying out risk assessments of employees' home workstations. And this can be done virtually and through the use of checklists. But I guess not every organisation in practice is doing that. I think there is a sort of a wait and see approach being taken by some organisations because I suppose the Health and Safety Authority haven't provided any clear guidance on this point. And I guess there is an acknowledgement that the health and safety legislation was drafted at a time when there was very little, if any, remote working. It doesn't specifically refer to remote working situations. So I guess the legislation isn't really fit for purpose for the modern workplace. So I suppose it's hoped that maybe in the legislation, which will introduce the right to request remote working, the government might also provide some clarity on this issue. I guess what a lot of employers are doing for now is providing a stipend or a certain level of expenses for employees so that they can set up their own home office but can, you know, request that the employer would provide a certain amount of, I guess, money towards that. Mm, but it does sound like the majority of employers are perhaps taking a wait and see yes. approach to what's coming in the legislation. Yeah, exactly. Ruth, can I come back to you now? Just a question on the protocol that has been in place. Even if there isn't a, a big bang tomorrow in terms of everybody going back to the office, there probably will be some increased number of employees going back in the coming weeks. So there's one question here around what are the key elements of the, the working safety protocol that employers should be mindful of in that? 
Yeah, so I suppose, I mean, the protocol is quite detailed and there's a lot of information in there, but just, I suppose, examples of measures mentioned would be carrying out a risk assessment to identify any risks or hazards in relation to COVID-19 in the workplace, and then putting in place, obviously, the necessary preventative and precautionary control measures to mitigate those risks. Having an up-to-date COVID-19 response plan for circumstances where an employee either is or becomes symptomatic while they're in the office, making sure that there's somewhere for them to isolate, implementing necessary infection prevention and control measures, such as you know physical distancing, hand hygiene, respiratory etiquette, and increased ventilation. And then I suppose it's also important to note that there is specific guidance in the protocol for employers who have medically vulnerable employees. So obviously employers should take account of that. And then there are just, I suppose, useful resource points and checklists for employers available on the Health and Safety Authority's website. But we actually have prepared a checklist ourselves to assist employers in preparing for a safe return to the workplace. So we might circulate that to attendees after the session. Very good. Thanks, Ruth. That that makes sense. Alva, I have a question for you then in regards to the gender pay gap. And this is perhaps a question for an economist as much as a lawyer, but is the view in the UK where I suppose it's been around for a little bit longer and we can take a look at it now, has it worked in the UK or is it making any difference at all? Oh, good. No, you scared me there for a moment, Brian. I thought you were going to ask me a maths question, but that's okay. Yeah, it's actually, it's a, it's a good question um, because the gender pay gap rules in the UK are actually under review. This year, 2022, they were always scheduled to be um, under review, I think five years after they were enacted. And there's been all sorts of various commentary, as you can imagine, in terms of what's working, what's not working. And I think happily, some of the aspects of the Irish legislation and most likely once the regulations come in, we'll see this in more detail. But happily, we've already kind of caught some of these issues that they're seeing in, from a UK perspective. So for example, and I know I didn't get into this in detail, but in the UK, the reporting obligations only affect employers with 250 employees or more. Whereas in Ireland, we're going to start with 250 to be sure. But two years after the anniversary of the regulations, we're going to drop that headcount to 150. And then we're going to drop again to, to 50 employees or more and um, within three years. So that's something that they're actually looking at over in the UK at the moment. Other things that we are doing right already, we're not just going to be reporting the numbers. We're actually going to, by we, I mean the law, is going to require employers to not just give us the gender pay gap, but actually there's a second publishing requirement. And this is a real key, crucial bit. They're going to be required to publish an explanatory statement or a narrative, which basically sets out two things. Number one, in the employer's opinion, why there are these differences, why there are gaps in terms of the the mean and median average hourly pay between men and women within that organization. So that's number one. Number two is going to be, what are you going to do about it? And what measures do you have in place right now? Or what measures are you going to put in place going forward to actually look to reduce that gap? And that's something that the UK are looking at bringing in as well, because right now it's just a numbers game. You just report the numbers. You don't have to put any explanation around it. And quite helpfully, I do think that that explanation is a very good way not to spin the numbers, not to kind of retrofit the situation, mm. but actually to contextualize, as I said earlier with that Uber example, for you know, any any gap on the face of it could look like a red flag. Once you have the opportunity to contextualize and explain it in a very objective manner, that's one thing. And secondly, then to kind of go that step further and say, well, we're taking this so seriously. These are the bits and pieces we're going to put in in terms of culture review, unconscious bias training, different skill assessments for promotions and recruitment and so on. So that's where we're really going to see some good changes. Final point on the UK, 
just because this is one that we don't have under um, current Irish law, is this idea that instead of the quartiles that I mentioned earlier, where we divide the business into four, there's a suggestion by the UK consultation groups that we actually scrutinize further and we look at deciles. So that that's dividing the, the, the company into tens, as I understand it, but correct me if I'm wrong. And um, so you really start drilling into that data and it's it's a much closer sense of scrutiny. So that's not something we have here. It's not something that they are, will necessarily bring into the UK. If they do, I do think it'll kind of get the, the cat among the pigeons a bit more because you'll be really getting a very strong sense of the different gaps at the different levels. There will be a concern in terms of data protection in certain businesses as to whether the tighter the bands, you know, are you starting to identify people's yeah. own pay and, and who's on, on what, which is not, not the purpose of, of the regulations and not the place we want to be. And um, so those are the main things. And there was mention at one point of extending it beyond gender and it would cover ethnicity and disability and things like that. How far has that gone? Uh, yeah, no, excellent point as well. Um, and this is something that it, it's not just UK specific, by the way. We're definitely seeing a lot of this in the US and other jurisdictions. In the US, it's more just for kind of state bodies and tendering for massive public works, for example, roads and bridges and so on. But yeah, it's it's very much indicative, I think, of the roadmap going forward in terms of all of these different these different considerations, gender being the one that we're looking at most closely, but certainly looking at, well, what is the disability pay gap? What is the race pay gap? And those two aspects are under consultation in the UK at the moment, but we do expect them to come in, again, rowing in behind the US. And a lot of these MNCs, these multinational corporations, already require this type of data to be published in terms of allocating work and allocating um, business contracts. So it's definitely something for us to watch this space on. Okay, thanks, Alva. Ellen, there's a couple of questions in there just on the, the right to disconnect code of practice, which is obviously part of the, the government's remote working strategy. Could mm-hmm. you maybe quickly bring us through the key concepts that came out of that and the challenges for employers? Yeah, of course. Thanks, Brian. So the code of practice was introduced in April last year, and it refers to, I guess, the right to disconnect is where an employee can disengage from work and then not engage in work-related electronic communication, such as emails outside of their normal working hours. So I suppose there's three main elements to the right to disconnect. The first is the right to not routinely perform work outside of normal working hours, um, the right not to be penalised for refusing to attend to work matters outside of normal working hours, and also the duty to respect another person's right to disconnect. So I suppose failing to follow the code isn't an, an offence in itself, but the code is admissible in evidence before the Workplace Relations Commission and the Labour Court. And there's also a specific provision in the code that says that if an employee makes a complaint to the WRC, which relates to the organisation of working time act- or specific provisions of the health and safety legislation, well, then the adjudicator will consider how the employer has complied with the code itself. So I suppose a key concept set out in the code, which is clear from the rights I mentioned, is this concept of an employee's normal working hours and what constitutes out of hours. So I suppose there has to be clarity around this and the contract of employment is key here. And, you know, to to have clarity for both the employer and the employee around expectations of what normal working hours are. Obviously, normal working hours can't exceed the maximum statutory limits and also that rest breaks need to be taken into account. Um, I, I suppose when of the main challenges here for employers is the need to manage the right to disconnect with, I guess, the growing demand amongst employees for flexible working, which which I referred to earlier in terms of their working hours. So many employees want the freedom to choose when they work 
and also where they work. But in terms of when they work, it's difficult to, I guess, reconcile this with the balance to have clarity around what constitutes normal working hours. Now, this is specifically referred to in the code. And I guess employers do need to ensure that flexible workers are also having a right to disconnect. And going back to the results we saw in the poll uh, and our comments around, it's interesting how it hasn't really changed things a whole lot. Uh, I do remember at the time it came out talking to one of the committee that drafted the code and she and indeed all of the committee were quite surprised at how far people were inclined to interpret it in the media reaction that came out Mm -hmm. at the time. Whereas the reality over the past 12 months perhaps is more in line with how they saw it going. Yeah, I think so, Brian. I mean, I suppose the code itself, it really just complements existing legislation. So perhaps that's why we haven't actually seen, you know, much of an impact over the last 10 months. And I suppose, you know, it's still relatively new. So I I guess if there are going to be claims taken in relation to the code, we may not have seen them come through the WRC yet. Mm. And indeed, a lot of our larger clients, the international clients in particular, were already doing a lot of the things that the code would expect as far back as maybe 2017, 2018. Yeah, exactly. So that might explain it to some extent. Russell, um, there's a question here about employers now having a whistleblowing policy in place. It might be worth just going back over that again, because uh, that is one of the type of things that people need to have on their agenda for their, their plan for the year. Yeah, sure. So I, I guess, obviously, the legislation that's going to be enacted requires that all employers have a whistleblowing policy and the, the obligation up to this point has just been in respect of public organizations. I, I think it's fair to say that perhaps because we just haven't seen that many claims under the whistleblowing legislation, they really have been quite infrequent if you compare them to other employment statutes. Not a lot of employers have whistleblowing policies. I mean, quite a few do, depending on the sector they work in. You know, financial services organizations will will invariably have some form of whistleblowing policy already, but quite a lot of employers don't. And I think not least because there is going to be this obligation coming down the tracks. But I think having a, an accessible and an effective whistleblowing policy is actually very important, particularly if you're looking to try and you know defend claims down the line in relation to whistleblowing matters. And I think that's also been highlighted by the Baranya uh, Supreme Court decision when it talks about what an employee needs to do to make a proper disclosure. So the judge there made it clear that when somebody... Um, issues of protective disclosure, it has to have sufficient factual content and specificity. And it, he also said as well that a protective disclosure can be expressly communicated to an employer, but also by necessary implication as well. So I think it's important that, you know, line managers are trained and understand, you know, what is and what isn't a protective disclosure and when they should escalate it. But I think, you know, for those employers out there with uh, whistleblowing policies, Many of those policies will have a designated person to whom protective disclosure goes to. And I think that's a very useful tool, particularly in a situation where somebody's trying to decipher whether or not something that has been said or written represents a, a protective disclosure. If the designated person is the only person to whom the disclosure should be made, well, then that person can be trained. And I think as well, a designated person you know, can also act as a cutoff from the rest of the business. So if all employees are, you know, properly informed about the procedures that need to be followed and they make protective disclosure to the designated person, well, then it's difficult for them to say that they have been penalized or dismissed because of the protective disclosure in circumstances where the detriment that they suffer is outside of that designated person, if that makes sense. So I think, you know, whistleblowing policies are really important if you're dealing with protective disclosures and 
it's now something that has to be put on the radar of all employers because of the impending legislation. And Russell, one related point that we, we didn't touch upon at all, and it only really applies in the financial services sector, but it applies to whistleblowing, is that as part of the year proposals coming from the, the central bank, it will be a particular contravention if an employee fails to blow the whistle or obstructs a colleague in blowing the whistle in regard to they see as wrongdoing. Now I'm paraphrasing slightly, but that is expressly provided for in the conduct standards. And I know from talking to a lot of the banks and insurance companies, they're very concerned that that is going to encourage employees to blow the whistle increasingly so in circumstances where the employee themselves may not even think there is wrongdoing going on, but they just want to make sure that they are seen to have blown the whistle in case it turns out to be wrongdoing. So that'll be an interesting one to watch as well, because it it looks like we've gone from a point where if you do blow the whistle, you're a good corporate citizen to, if those conduct standards come in as drafted, going to a point where if you fail to do so, you have breached the CBI's expectations. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see how that one pans out. We'll just cover one last point, and it's in regards to some of the, the vaccine data approaches that we've seen, and Ruth, we talked about them before amongst employers as to how they're trying to get around this requirement. So if we're back to the premise that you simply can't ask an employee, have you taken the vaccine? Well, then what compromises, what else can an employer do? The closest I've seen to a compromise that employers are prepared to take is an anonymous voluntary survey where they ask employees if they wish to confirm whether or not they are or have taken the vaccine so that the employer can at least get to the point where they can say to the staff at large, 90% of our staff have taken the vaccine or whatever it may be. Now, as we know, this is much more of a GDPR problem than an employment law problem. And in the GDPR world, voluntary and anonymous carry a very, very high bar. So talking to my GDPR colleagues, they present this as a theoretical possible solution you could look at. It's yet to be tested by the DPC, but the DPC has been very, very sensitive to all things vaccine related. So I think we would have to say even a solution like this definitely comes with risk. And my experience and and perhaps the rest of the group is the same over the last couple of months is we've had an awful lot of clients asking questions around this and looking to do things. But when they drill into it and see the complexity within Europe that GDPR brings when it comes to vaccine data, a lot of them back off. And I just don't, I can't think of any clients that have actually gone so far as to roll one out. There was one other really practical proposal that we were working on. And I thought we had cracked it at last. There was a eureka moment where we were talking to a client about a solution where they would simply have somebody in reception who would ask an employee coming in, can you show me your vaccine cert on your phone? But the the receptionist or the security guard, whoever it may be, simply wouldn't record any data. They would simply let you in if you had it. And if you didn't, you wouldn't be let in. But even in the GDPR world, that is a problem because you are potentially processing data because the very fact that you're in the building inherently means the employer knows you have the vaccine. And because of other uh, corresponding obligations to record data around who's in the building for contact tracing, it means if the employer knows that Brian Dunn was in the building in that day, it means the employer knows Brian has taken vaccine. So what I thought was our, our solution fell on its face as well. So it kind of gives you an idea of the lengths employers are going to to try and come up with creative solutions. But unfortunately, GDPR is the same brick wall again and again. So I think we'll wrap it up with that. Thank you 
for your time for the panel today. It's been a hugely interesting discussion and I, I think the attendees all got a huge amount out of it. And then let me thank the attendees as well for joining today and um, to wish you all a very good day and a happy new year at this point. So thank you all again and goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N, dot done at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit matheson.com.